All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, we have a wonderful progressive for you guys today. He is the professor, professor, the professor of democracy and justice at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Uh, I love that title. It doesn't it doesn't get any better than that. He's also the author of uh, the book FDR and Democracy: The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, so. Uh, Professor Harvey K, great to have you back on the Young Turks. It's great to see you, Jake. Really great. All right. So, Harvey, um, why do we need FDR right now? Well, obviously, we're in the middle of a crisis. That even before the coronavirus, we were in a crisis that probably compares to the greatest crises Americans have had to face, whether it was the Revolution, the Civil War, the Great Depression of the 1930s, the fight against fascism. I mean. These were crises that threatened the very being of the United States, its purpose and promise. And we were already, after 40 years, in a crisis that warranted dramatic progressive action. And then, unexpectedly, one could say, we end up in the middle of a crisis that calls to our attention all the more the crisis of the planet, the crisis of our well-being, and the crisis of inequality in America, which we see every day when the likes of uh, Lieutenant Governor of Texas talks about his willingness to sacrifice certain people so that they can make more money in the state of Texas. So Harvey, let's ask tough questions. Uh, you know, you were a supporter of Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders at times uh, ran on a platform that was incredibly similar to FDR, uh, but he lost. So uh, why do you think he lost? Well, I think he lost for a variety of reasons. I mean, Obviously, the Democratic National Committee had its, had its, its plans and its aspirations, or preferably to, to use the word ambitions, to make sure that Bernie did not win, okay? So I don't think there's any question that whatever faults Bernie had, he was up against the challenge that he faced equally in 2016 of the DNC determination to not allow him to win. But it's also the case, and I really do believe that Bernie in many ways failed us in 2016, and in some ways came so close to doing what needed doing. And that is, he probably, to my mind, should have literally cloaked himself in Franklin Roosevelt, in the New Deal, in the rights of labor. I mean, he had all of this on the agenda. But the fact was that when in a debate with the likes of Biden and the others, and they looked out at the American people, and had the audacity, remember this is only several weeks ago, had the audacity to say, we cannot afford Medicare for all. He should have taken control of that debate and said, wait a minute, are we the party of Franklin Roosevelt? The Franklin Roosevelt who in 1935 signed into law the Social Security Act, an act that he would have wanted to include national health care had it not been for the opposition of big business and the American Medical Association. And then in the 1940s, when he called for the Economic Bill of Rights, he knew very well that when he talked about national health care, that 85% of Americans wanted national health care in, in 1943, 44, 45. So he, I think if he had grabbed hold of FDR, you know, Eugene Debs, the American labor leader and socialist, once was defending himself in court, and he brought into the courtroom a whole bunch of American progressives from Thomas Paine to Abraham Lincoln and, and others. And I think in many ways what 
Bernie should have done at that moment is bring FDR onto the stage. And that way, if they're going to attack Bernie Sanders, they would be attacking Franklin Roosevelt. But that's, you know, that's my own particular campaign of these last several months. Yeah, so I hear you on that. But um, the FDR story, and, that, and that's what you're an expert on, what you wrote the book on, uh, is both incredibly encouraging for politics uh, and incredibly discouraging at the same time. So uh, the encouraging part, Harvey, is that politics can make a giant difference. So if um, FDR hadn't pushed for Social Security, we would, and hadn't fought like hell for Social Security, we wouldn't have had Social Security, including all the way up to now, because look, he tried for national health care, couldn't get it, and then it's gone. It's yeah. gone for 80 years, gone. Yeah. Nobody has it. So they got Social Security passed, and now people are not starving the streets like they were uh, in the bad old days where senior citizens were thrown bootstraps. And we could have had that system. And right now, the Paul Ryans of the world and the Donald Trumps of the world would have been saying, hey, listen, man, the private system is the best system. And, you know, if they don't have the private, uh, you know, savings, that's their problem. And they should be able to deal with that. And we don't want communism around here, et cetera. On the other hand, though, Harvey, and, and talk to me about this, it's also discouraging because, Jesus Christ, we're still fighting the same damn battle. And for all this time, the forces against national health care have been winning. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think about it this way, Jake. For a start, when I said 1943-44, 85% of Americans wanted national health care. If one actually looks closely at the surveys ever since then, though the numbers may not have been that high through the 50s into the 60s, never in the course of, the, of those decades did fewer than 50% of Americans want national health care assured for every American. That's to start. And I can tell you, I've been measuring this, and I mean, I'm 70 years old now, and I'm thinking back to 1970 when I was, what, uh, that's how many years ago? Uh, 50 years ago? So here's the thing. In 1970, you could not have convinced me that we would not have had national health care sooner. We had Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 with Lyndon Johnson. That was supposed to be the, the lever, the wedge that we, by which we were going to end up with national health care. Even Richard Nixon had a plan for it. Teddy Kennedy wanted to pursue it. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, it isn't only the opposition of the Republicans and corporations. It's the failure of the Democrats to remember that they're the party of Roosevelt. And moreover, to pay attention to the needs of working people and the working poor, for which for too long they have turned their back on that. So one of the reasons I put this book together, this collection of FDR, hoping, in fact, that we'd see a, a a Sanders victory and, and presidency, and it might well empower him with, with, with words, is also the fact, I want to remind Americans that there was a president, a very significant president, one of our two or three greatest presidents, who wanted these kinds of developments. And we have it in our power, not to get too close to Thomas Paine to begin the world over again, but we do have it in our power to pursue these things. And my concern right now is that we should not, in the wake of Bernie's withdrawal or Bernie's defeat, presume that it's over. I mean, the fact is the struggle continues. And indeed, even now we should be pressing and pressing to, to push, even if he doesn't want to do it, to push Biden and the Democrats to the left on these kinds of questions. And whether it's Trump who wins in November, in which case we have to turn the resistance into something far more than a resistance, I mean, direct action on a, on a, on a far, far greater scale, or if it's, if it's Biden, Biden has got to be pushed absolutely pushed. And I say, let's use 
FDR's words to make those kinds of push, pushes possible. So, Harvey, uh, progressives, as usual, find ourselves in a tough spot. Uh, we'll, uh, you know, it's been 55 years since Medicare and Medicaid and, uh, and where we thought it might be close to getting national health care. It's going to be at least another five years. So it's going to be 60 years. Uh, and uh, yes, it is often the Democratic Party uh, that uh, throws us under a bus. And, and that's certainly what happened in the primaries, and that's inarguable. It wasn't the Republicans who were arguing against Bernie Sanders and FDR, in a sense. It was the Democrats. And so right. you say it's the party of FDR, but the answer is not really. I no, mean, no, right. Yeah, it, it was, it should be, right? But, uh, but this, I mean, FDR would roll over in his grave if he saw how the Democratic Party turned out and how corporate yeah. it turned out. So, but here we are uh, in that in the same old spot uh, where you've got someone like Biden who said he would veto national health care if it came to his desk versus Donald Trump, the madman, the mad king. So what do you do, Harvey? Well, I say as much as I hate to do it, I'm going to vote for Biden in, in November. And I'll tell you why. The fact is that I may find much of Biden's record absolutely deplorable. But I find Donald Trump's record not only despicable, but a greater threat to the very possibility of making happen the very things that we progressives want to make happen. I mean, look, he's not incapable of trying to, to suspend elections in November. He's not incapable of asserting a more dictatorial kind of authority. The Republicans seem to be willing to go along with almost everything he wants. The fact is that we at least have to have some kind of movement beyond Donald Trump in November. And as much as I said, I think his record somewhat is, is pretty, look, he's a neoliberal Biden, okay? But it's, a, it's not the kind of reactionary fascistic politics of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's definitely true. One more question, Harvey. Uh, ironically, it was the older generation, I sure might remember FDR better, uh, that wound up voting for Biden and against not just Bernie Sanders, but all of those progressive agendas that FDR stood for. It wasn't just health care. I mean, you read the book uh, that, that Harvey's got out, you'll see. I mean, uh, FDR, uh, you know, would have been ridden out of town uh, in today's uh, Democratic <laughs> yeah. Party, and he would have been ridden out of town by MSNBC. They would have called him a radical uh, rabble rouser, et cetera. But it was that older generation uh, that, that voted against those principles. Why do you think that happened? Well, I think there's, I think however much, however much young people respond to the term democratic socialism, older folks do not. And I think that that was a problem that Bernie had in many ways from the outset. I think, for example, I mean, I'm not, I'm not splitting hairs here. I think the term social democracy would have been far more effective. But, but even beyond that, it's the, look, I mean, it's my generation we're talking about. And who would have thought my generation, the so-called radical generation of the 60s, would have turned out to be this sort of staid sort of generation of, of in their 60s and 70s. So it's, you know, things happen, which is also, by the way, and I think this is important. Everyone says, look, younger generations is progressive. And that's the generation of the future. Don't live politically on demographics. Don't. Politics is the most important thing, and politics demands not just action, it demands words. 
persuasive words, words that will resonate in the American imagination. That's, that's, again, one of the reasons why I think we need to take hold of our history. We need to look back to FDR. Look, the times are different, but the challenges seem to remain the same. Yeah, I, I think that if it wasn't for the magical words of uh, Martin Luther King, we probably would not have gotten the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. And if it wasn't for direct action in the streets uh, that he also did, nonviolent action, we would not have gotten those things. Um, so it's possible that you can get incredible progressive policies without progressives in office, but you've got to keep up the pressure if you're going to do that. Can I just can I just say something I, which I, I really want to emphasize? And I, I'm not trying to patronize you, but I think this is really important. You know, I've been thinking about where we go from here. And one of the advantages we have right now is that we really do have the makings of a movement media. And I think The Young Turks is in many ways the premier operation for that. But we also have shows like The Majority Report during the day. We have a vast army of podcasters across the country. We have In the Morning, Crystal Ball on Rising. I mean, we are equipped to, in many ways, try to sustain our movement and try to reach out beyond our movement and encourage working people to see that history is open. It's not come to an end. That's right. Well, look, that's why we're trying to uh, keep TYT strong and healthy through tyt.com slash go. Uh, but uh, we're out of time here. But I want you to know Harvey's got a, these amazing books that, that teach you how things were, the reality of it, the reality of how we got changed through FDR. So check out FDR and Democracy, the greatest speeches and writings of President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But also check out Take Hold of Our History, Make America... America Radical again, and so many others that, that uh, Harvey's written. Thank you so much for joining us, Harvey. Thank really. you, Cenk. I look forward to our meeting next time in person. That'd be great. The whole country looks forward to it because that <laughs> means we're traveling. We're not at home anymore. Right. Thank you. All right. See you soon. All right. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. Uh, if you haven't heard, there's a really interesting show on Netflix. It's called The Innocence Files. And You've now seen probably a couple of shows that sh uh, show you stories where, oh, it turns out uh, the person who you thought did it didn't actually do it. Well, this does this on a grand scale. Uh, it's got nine episodes, and it shows you folks who were uh, on death row, for example, uh, who it turns out were completely innocent. Uh, and uh, Netflix did this with uh, The Innocence Project. And we're lucky here because we now have uh, Vanessa Potkin and Peter Neufeld uh, from the Innocence Project with us. Uh, Peter's actually one of the co-founders of the Innocence Project. And Vanessa does, is their director of post-conviction litigation over there, which is the main thing that they do. Um, so it's great to have you both here. Uh, I want to ask you about the show, and obviously I want to ask you about uh, the Innocence Project overall. Um, so... A funny question that doesn't have anything to do with with justice to begin with, but uh, how did you guys wind up working with Netflix uh, to get this show on the air? You've been doing this a long, long time. Peter, you started this book back in 92, right? Uh, so how did this particular show come about? So, you know, we've been, gosh, we've been hit by uh, producers for years with different ideas for shows, but they were always wrong. Uh, and then uh, a few years ago, uh, uh, Ari Manuel approached us with... Um, an idea and said that he would make sure there'd be a show where we could show the themes in an important way and get good directors. And we said, okay. And then, 
he basically introduced us to Netflix, and the Netflix documentary team has been just outstanding. Um, and uh, they gave us the ability to select the themes, to work with them on picking the directors. Uh, the directors worked with us in picking the cases. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful relationship, and we're very grateful. Yeah. And so, and we, we've talked to some of the directors that you had on uh, uh, these episodes before. Some of the best names uh, there are in, in filmmaking, Alex Gibney, uh, Andy Grieb was on recently talking about one of the episodes. So, uh, Vanessa, though, this uh, give people a sense of uh, context here. Um, I want to talk about how you get them off in a second, but... Uh, how many uh, folks have been wrongly convicted that you guys helped to set free? So throughout the country, there have been over 350 people proven innocent with DNA testing. And when you take into consideration all the different types of new evidence that can be used um, to exonerate people, to over 2,500 people have been proven innocent after wrongful conviction. And the, um, of the DNA cases, the Innocence Project has played a role in, um, you know, over 150 of those cases. And we've also exonerated many people with non-DNA forms of evidence. How many people on death row? So overall, there have been, um, you know, just about 20 people who have walked um, off of death row after being proven innocent with DNA evidence. And so we were going to kill them, and it turns out they were not the right people. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you'll see in this series is that, you know, it um, you would think that if somebody was going to be prosecuted for capital murder and sentenced to death, it would be a case that had ironclad evidence. And that's just not the case. Um, you know, there are many people sitting on death row today who were convicted based on you know, very flimsy evidence um, based on faulty forensics, um, evidence that we now know, like the bite mark comparison evidence, you know, at issue in the, the case of Kennedy Brewer and LaVon Brooks featured, just evidence that has been totally discredited and is unreliable, um, yet there are still people facing execution today. Uh, we represent one of them, a man named Eddie Lee Howard in Mississippi, based on this same evidence, um, and, and he's facing execution today. So um, the problem persists. Right. Peter, it, it's funny you say in the first episode that after you started the Innocence Project, um, ironically, you lost a little bit of faith in the American criminal justice system. Uh, why is that? <clears throat> well, I mean, for instance, I, I started out as a public defender. And when I was a public defender, if I had heard that uh, my client had confessed, I thought that was the end of the case, and I had to quickly try and work out a plea bargain. Uh, now we find out that 25% of our exonerations uh, are comprised of people who falsely confessed. Um, I had been in a lot of cases where an eyewitness would point at the client and say, as God is my witness, I'll never forget that person as long as I live. And that sounded pretty compelling. And now we know in 70% of our cases, that those were unreliable identifications and they were wrong. So all these different things that we believed in for so long as the linchpins of criminal justice turn out to be unreliable, turn out to be inaccurate. Um, experts lie, experts distort uh, the evidence. Um, witnesses are mistaken, police engage in misconduct, prosecutors want to win at any cost. So I didn't know that 
uh, 30 years ago. I, I know that now. So, Peter, why do people uh, confess when they didn't do it? Boy, is that a good question? Because I think of, of all the causes of wrongful conviction, that's probably the, the most counterintuitive. I mean, we all like to think that uh, I would never admit to something I didn't do unless they put a gun to my head. But um, it turns out that a lot of people get incredibly stressed out during these lengthy interrogations. Uh, the police are accusatory. They're threatening violence, even if they're not using violence. Um, they're telling people if they just say what they what uh, the cop wants to hear, they can go home, which they can't. And finally, people just say, OK, I'll give them what they want. I know I'm innocent and I'll never be convicted of this because there's no other evidence. Well, they're wrong. They get convicted just based on the confession. Right. Um, and Vanessa, um, how much does race play a role uh, in these convictions, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis class? Uh, because we know that if you're wealthy, you're going to be able to lawyer up and have a much, much better defense. Everybody knows that. Even the Republicans know that. Everybody knows it. But so there's class and there's race. I don't know that you can tell what's more important. Uh, but some people are still skeptical that race is a factor, although they even if they might acknowledge classes. Well, we know that, um, you know, race is a huge factor in the criminal justice system. I mean, just yesterday or you know, recently, the Supreme Court um, struck down the use of non-unanimous um, jury verdicts in Louisiana as unconstitutional and, you know, violating a fair right to a trial. And the whole origin of non-unanimous jury verdicts and why they exist in Louisiana and still, you know, up until just a couple of days ago in Oregon was to dilute the black vote um, of jurors. And so, um, you know, they had very racist origins. And so, you know, something like that, that might not be at the forefront to just looking at, you know, who is, you know, being targeted by our criminal justice system, where are we policing um, you know, what kind of implicit bias comes into, um, into play um, in the investigations of, you know, crimes, what rushes to judgment about criminality come to the forefront. So, you know, the entire criminal justice system disproportionately impacts people of color, um, the war on drugs, and so too does it when we look at wrongful convictions. And yes, you know, class is huge. I mean, we have a crisis of indigent defense in this country. You know, we have public defenders who, you know, handle hundreds of cases who spend an average of, you know, seven minutes on cases. They're pled out um, and um, they're, they're not really investigated because the public defender system, the resources just aren't there. And so just take somebody like Kennedy Brewer, who, you know, is in the series, the Netflix series, you know, in the early 90s, you know, he lived in a house. Um, where there was no running water, right? And the state of Mississippi decides that he committed a crime and they're prosecuting him and they have all the resources of the state, you know, the district attorney's office. They can call in the FBI, the Mississippi Highway Patrol, you know, and what does he have? You know, he has appointed counsel and um, who, you know, is overtaxed and not really able to provide him the type of defense that, you know, we would want if we were fighting for our lives. Yeah. Can I, can I add something on that? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the the um, the Justice Department had kept data for a long time on rapes in America, and most rapes in America are committed within 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 a race. Black men raping black women, white men raping white women, 
Um, but, and it's only about 11% of the rapes are cross-racial. Unlike that number of 11%, 55% of our clients were black men wrongfully convicted of sexually assaulting or sexually assaulting and killing white women. It was five times what it should be. Um, not only were are, are black people uh, more often wrongfully convicted uh, than than white people, um, but horribly, it actually takes the Innocence Projects and the other members of the network on average four years longer for us to exonerate somebody who is African-American than to exonerate someone who is white. That the courts are more resistant, the cops are more resistant, um, there are more uh, misidentifications, false confessions, uh, jailhouse informants, you name it, more factors come into play with our black clients than our white clients. So we see racism in every aspect of our work. Yeah, uh, it's really discouraging. Uh, Vanessa, but why go through all this trouble if you could just uh, send in Kim Kardashian instead? Well, um, certainly that can be a powerful force. Um. <laughs> no, seriously, Vanessa, uh, look, she did get one person off. Uh, you, on the other hand, have gotten over 30 people exonerated, uh, and uh, they've collectively served 500 years in prison wrongly, and you helped to set them free. Uh, if I was you, I'd wake up every day uh, knowing that my life has been worth it. And so it's a wonderful thing that you do. Uh, but so that's why I want to end on, on this last question with you. Um, if there's one thing that you could do to help fix the justice system overall so we wouldn't have these issues, what would it be? Only one. Um, I think that, you know, we over-criminalize in this country and we just have gone so far awry in how many cases, you know, we prosecute from misdemeanors to serious felonies that we cannot get it right all of the time. There's no way our system, you know, our courts, people can't exercise their right to have jury trials. Our public defenders can't provide proper defenses. You know, we just have, we have to reel back and think about, you know, what we are prosecuting in this country. and. I can't just limit myself to one because I really do think that at the end of the day, you know, prosecutors um, wield enormous power. And, you know, we need to change the mentality of prosecutors so that it's not about winning. It really is about doing justice and where they step out of line and where they hide and they, you know, don't turn over evidence and um, they engage in misconduct. There has to be accountability our whole entire criminal justice system is about accountability. So we can't, you know, not hold those accountable when they're within the system and leading to wrongful convictions and just unfair, unfair trials and outcomes. Yeah. So I, I had to put two things in there. That's okay. <laughs> and folks, when you uh, watch the Innocence Files on Netflix, you'll see that uh, unfortunately, prosecutorial misconduct is a giant part of the story. And so, uh, and you know, I worked very, very, very briefly as a basically interns for two different summers in prosecutor's office. And I thought we were trying to pursue truth and justice. And then uh, having seen uh, the work that you guys have done all these years, 
unfortunately, not everybody thinks that way, and it makes an enormous difference. So uh, you guys make a big difference. Everybody check out The Innocence Files on Netflix, but uh, Vanessa and Peter, uh, you're doing God's work, uh, and if you don't believe in that, at least you're doing justice's work. So thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for inviting us.